If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. Life's better with American Family Insurance. Because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit amfam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. You're listening to DNA ID, brought to you by Abjack Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including The Murder in My Family, Missing Persons, Scene of the Crime, Three Men and a Mystery, All Things Crime, and Zodiac Speaking. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. This is part two of episode 21, April Tinsley. If you haven't listened to part one, please go back and do so, as it contains all the background information for this episode. If you recall, when we left off with part one, Detective Brian Martin of the Fort Wayne Police Department had contracted with Parabon Nanolabs to conduct forensic genealogy to find April's killer. Taking an initial look at the DNA profile from the case, Parabon told the investigators that they believed that there was an above-average chance that they could identify a distant relative of the killer. This was because there was a person in the GEDmatch database used by Parabon who shared 131 centimorgans with the killer. This level of shared DNA is consistent with certain distant relatives. Here is an excerpt from the actual Parabon report, quote, Your case's top CM match is 131.6 CM. 90 to 200 cm includes second cousins once removed, half second cousins, first cousins thrice removed, and half first cousins twice removed. There is at least one individual who is plus or minus 131 centimorgans. Here's how it worked. Taking the person who shared 131 centimorgans with the killer, as well as 11 other relatives who shared between 49 and 114 centimorgans with the suspect, C.C. Moore built out the four genetic networks that comprised the killer's direct ancestors. Genetic network number one was descended from a John Green, born in 1836. Genetic network number two descended from James Miller, born 1839, and his wife Nancy Barnett, born 1843. Genetic network number three descended from Henley McIntosh, born 1820, and wife Rachel Mays, born in 1824. And genetic network number four descended from Wright Dillian, born 1863, and wife Avery Cantley, born 1869. 
John Green of Ohio married Adora May Dillian in 1926, merging two of the networks. Then, in 1889, John Miller married a Macintosh, merging the other two networks. Triangulation then determined that the four genetic networks converged further through the marriage of Patricia J. Green, born in Ohio in 1932, and Robert D. Miller, born in Ohio in 1921. The two married in 1956 in Florida. The Millers had three sons. These were John D. Miller, born in 1959, J. Miller, whom I'm calling J and not using his real name, born in 1961, and Robert Miller, born in 1958. The family of five soon moved to Fort Wayne. On July 2, 2018, detectives received Parabon's report on its forensic genealogy research. Investigators were hoping for maybe the names of possible grandparents or other second-degree relatives of their killer. But instead, Parabon informed them that the DNA sample from April's underwear and the condoms left for the other little girls came from one of the three brothers with the surname Miller who were from the Fort Wayne area. But Parabon was able to narrow it down even further. The brother named Robert Miller, born in 1958, had died before the 2004 notes containing the condoms with their DNA-heavy semen inside. So Robert could not be the killer. That left John and Jay. They were both still alive and both still living in the area. Detectives Meals and Martin were shocked. Parabon had just handed them the names of two possible suspects who had never been looked at, and it took the technology company mere months to do so, after 30 years of dead ends. Treating the information about the Miller brothers as a lead into the possible identity of their suspect, investigators went to work to gather evidence to verify that one of the Miller brothers was April's killer. The first thing detectives did was run criminal background checks on the two brothers. Jay had no record. John did, though. Detective Martin found that John had been cited as a suspicious person for two incidents in 2002 and 2003, in which she harassed women and girls in public parking lots using lewd, offensive, and sexual language. These incidents did not rise to the level of a sexual offense that would have required John to register as a sex offender, and detectives verified that he was not on the sex offender registry. After digging up a photo of John D. Miller, detectives discovered that he had all the traits predicted by the phenotype, brown hair, greenish eyes, fair skin. But the years had not been kind to John Miller. By 2018, he looked every much the part of a monster who preyed on children. On July 2nd, Indiana State Police Detective Cliff Hetrick and Fort Wayne Detective Brian Martin started staking out John Miller's trailer home, located at 13722 Main Street, lot number 4 of the Grable Mobile Home Park. It wasn't hard to find, as a plaque with the name Miller adorned a wooden post in a mulched flower bed. The trailer was very close to the neighboring trailers, maybe 10 feet distance in between. It was also across the street from a city park with a playground and playing fields. John had lived there alone since the mid-1980s. Miller's home in Tiny Graybill, population 1200, was right in the very town he had terrorized with several of the notes left for little blonde girls. Martin and Hetrick watched Miller for two weeks. They followed along as he drove to the home of his brother, Jay, in Auburn, Indiana. They surveilled him at work and even shot secret photos of Miller stocking the shelves in the toy section at Walmart. He worked third shift, the night shift, at the Walmart in Kendallville, Indiana. 
On July 6th, Martin and Hetrick surreptitiously confiscated the garbage left outside Miller's yellow trailer home. Per Indiana law, this is legal as long as there is probable cause for the search. Later, they searched through the trash, not a detective's favorite job, for items that, that could contain DNA. They found empty Banquet brand Salisbury steak TV dinner trays and some empty Walmart brand cola bottles. These types of items can contain the DNA of whoever ate or drank them. But then, detectives found a literal jackpot in terms of DNA evidence. A Durex brand XXL condom box and three used condoms containing physical evidence deposited inside. They sent the condoms to the Indiana State Police Crime Lab for testing and comparison to the samples in the Tinsley case. They had to wait three days for an answer. On July 9th, detectives received the word they'd been waiting for. The samples were a match. The man who had discarded the used condoms in his trash in 2018 was the same man who had left semen in condoms with the notes and on April's underwear and jacket. His name was John D. Miller. He was 59 years old. On Sunday, July 15th, Miller went to work his usual shift at Walmart. After his shift, he returned to his trailer. Detectives Hetrick and Martin were waiting for him. Martin later described what went down to WANE, quote, When he pulled in, we approached John. He had groceries in the back of his car, and we gave him the opportunity to take them in the house, and he said no. He asked if everything was okay. We asked if he'd help us with a situation we were investigating and if he'd like to go to the police station with us, and he agreed to all that. In the 20-minute car ride from Graybill to downtown Fort Wayne, the detectives chatted with Miller making small talk. He told them that he liked to watch cop shows and do crossword puzzles. He said he would never miss an episode of Live PD. He informed them that he has an incredible memory for dates. I think he enjoyed the car ride down, Hetrick later told WANE. This seems likely, as it turned out, the profilers were correct. Miller seemed to take secret pleasure out of the publicity and notoriety of his crime. Once they were settled in at the station, Miller wearing a black collared work polo and glasses, detectives read him his rights. Martin said, John, we wanted to talk to you about a case we've been working on for a while, and someone brought up your name, and we wanted to see what you had to say about that. Do you have any idea what we need to talk to you about? And Miller responded slowly and with deliberation, I think probably the Tinsley case. Yep, you're right, Martin said. What would make you say the Tinsley case? Miller said, I watched America's Most Wanted. Martin, what do you think we want to discuss with you about the Tinsley case? What evidence do you think we have? Miller, DNA. Martin, yeah. Can you talk to me about what happened in 1988? Miller initially says, I can't. But then he starts talking. He says that he saw April walking down the sidewalk by herself, and nobody was around. He parked up the block and got out, wielding a sharp letter opener that resembled a knife. I grabbed her, he said. He showed her the opener and told her to get in the car. April said, don't hurt me, I'll do whatever you say. Miller drove April to his trailer, the same one he still lived in, a ride of about 20 minutes. Inside the trailer, he took her to the bedroom, raped her, and choked her until she died. Martin asked, why didn't you just drop her off? Let her go. Miller, I thought about it. I was afraid she would tell. Martin, but she didn't even know you. Per WANE, Detective Martin later said, quote, I tried to maintain a calm, casual look at him. I didn't want to jump out of my chair. We brought up nothing about April Tinsley's case, and for him to say that, I was like, this is going to go well. Hetrick said, I knew we'd find out what happened to April. I could tell he wanted to tell us, too. 
John did want to tell them. They talked for hours. John was right about having a thing for dates. He was able to give very specific details about abducting April on April 1st on Hoagland Avenue, when exactly he dumped her, and when she was found. He told them that he was out trolling for a victim that day, driving around looking for a female child to take. He had never seen April before. Detective Martin said, quote, He was looking for a child suitable for what he wanted, and he saw her as a target, and he jumped on it. Detective Hetrick observed, quote, It's scary to think that there are people in our society capable of doing this. Had she been five minutes earlier or five minutes later, we probably wouldn't be sitting here today. It could have been anybody, any little kid in that area that day, and that was probably not the first time he had gone looking. And that's what's so scary, the randomness. Detective Martin told me that not only was Miller out scanning for a victim that day, he had done so on many, many other days in the years before and since. April, walking alone, was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. If it hadn't been her, it would have eventually been some other little girl. In fact, Miller told Martin that on six occasions after April, Miller was close to grabbing another little girl and was stymied by someone approaching the kid only at the last minute. Miller said that families became way more cautious after he took April, and this prevented his ability to strike again. Interestingly, Miller's brother Jay later observed that he had always wondered how Miller put 70,000 miles on his Chevy Malibu, which he had obtained new three years earlier, when all he seemingly did was go back and forth to and from Walmart. But now we know that Miller spent thousands of hours over the decades slowly driving around other neighborhoods far from his own to troll for victims, leave notes for little girls, and watch and wait. Oh, and another thing. Miller also knew about the shoe being found on the other side of the road from April and exactly where it had been tossed. When detectives had what they needed, Miller was booked into the Allen County Jail. An affidavit for probable cause to arrest was prepared by Detective Martin. It charged that Miller knowingly committed the crimes of murder and child molestation, a Class A felony. The charging document for State v. Miller lists him as five foot eight, one hundred and ninety-four pounds. Per the affidavit, quote, John Miller advised that he choked April M. Tinsley to death so that she would not report him to police. John Miller told detectives that it took about ten minutes for April M. Tinsley to die. John Miller advised that after April M. Tinsley was dead, that he then had anal sex with the deceased body of April N. Tinsley. John Miller advised detectives that he then drove April M. Tinsley's body to CR 68, Spencerville, Indiana, and dumped her body in the early morning of April 2, 1988. John D. Miller stated that he did drive by where he had dumped the body the next day when he did not see it on the news. John D. Miller further stated that he saw April M. Tinsley's shoe in the car and threw it out along the ditch on CR 68, Spencerville, Indiana. So, in Miller's confession to detectives, he told them it was all over by April 2nd. Miller had kept April alive in his trailer for a time, but killed her within hours of abducting her. He had sex with her corpse, he waited until it was dark out, and drove out to County Road 68 to dump her on the roadside. Early investigators had been wrong when they guessed that she hadn't been in the ditch for more than a few hours. And, most creepy of all, Detective Martin told me that Miller seemed to be enjoying himself as he recounted what he had done, reliving the crime, and relishing his getting away with it for so long. When you drive the brand ranked number one in dependability by J.D. Power, you can stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. 
Visit your local Kia dealer today to see yourself behind the wheel of the brand-ranked number one in dependability by J.D. Power. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Kia received the fewest reported problems among all brands in the J.D. Power 2022 U.S. Vehicle Dependability Study based on 2019 models. See jdpower.com slash awards for 2022 details. Detectives found out that one aspect of the original investigation had led them down the wrong path. Miller was driving a blue Mercury Lynx when he took April. He was not driving a blue pickup truck and had never driven such a truck. Detective Martin told me that the blue truck that was the focus of the original investigation and the sketch of its driver were red herrings. They had nothing to do with April at all. All the resources that had been invested in finding that truck had been in vain. Miller also said that he had left April in the roadside ditch in the middle of the night of April 1st to 2nd. He drove off and then found her second shoe in his car. He threw it out the window, which is how it landed on the other side of the road. And when he heard nothing about anyone finding her on the news after a day, he actually returned to the scene and drove slowly by the ditch to see if she was still there. It's kind of fascinating that, one, Miller did what criminalists have maintained that killers often do— He revisited the scene, driving by the ditch to see if she was still there. And two, the placement of the shoe in a separate location wasn't a diabolical scheme or a meaningful signal of some kind. It was just a simple oversight that he had left her shoe in his car in the first place. In the end, John wrote out a confession letter in his own hand that proved to be the same scrawl as the notes, with no punctuation. It read, I saw April Tinsley walking down the sidewalk. I was standing by my car. I grabbed her and told her not to scream, put her in my car and drive out my trailer. And we walk inside and I carry her back bedroom and had sex with her. Later, I kill her. Then early next, I took her to Country Road 68 and dumped her body in the ditch. Signed, John D. Miller, July 15th, 2018. As retired detective Dan Camp pointed out in an interview on Fort Wayne's NBC station, the FBI profile of Miller had been largely correct. Quote, they gave us the profile of the person that probably killed April. Matches him to a T. 29, white, single, yeah, the whole nine yards. They hit it right on the head to what John Miller looks like and his characteristics today, he told the news station. On the day of Miller's confession and arrest, Fort Wayne authorities issued a news release. Quote, This morning, July 15, 2018, agents of the Fort Wayne Police Department and the Indiana State Police arrested John D. Miller, M.W., DOB 7759 of Grable, Indiana, in connection with the homicide of April Tinsley, which occurred in April 1988. Miller has been preliminarily charged with murder, child molesting, and confinement. He will make his first court appearance tomorrow in the Allen Superior Court, at the Bud Meeks Justice Center for an initial hearing. If probable cause is found, the state of Indiana will be given 72 hours to file formal charges. Janet Tinsley learned of the arrest when the DA and three investigators showed up to tell her the news in person. She said she was shocked and trying to process it all. Her ex-husband Michael took in the news and went silent, choosing not to speak to the media and refusing to respond to calls and text messages for quite some time. It was a lot to process. Now, if you recall from the forensic genealogy discussion earlier, John Miller had a brother, whom I'm calling Jay, who is still alive. When John was arrested, a neighbor called Jay, who was often at John's trailer home, to tell him that his brother had just been taken away in a squad car. Jay went down to the police station. He told WPTA, quote, 
They asked, have you heard of the April Tinsley murder? And I said, don't tell me he's here for that. Jay agreed to talk to police. They questioned him for about 90 minutes. He also voluntarily submitted to a cheek swab for DNA comparison purposes. In an exclusive interview the day after his brother's arrest, Jay told WPTA that he couldn't eat or sleep. He was so horrified at his brother's actions. He said, quote, As far as I'm concerned, when they told me that he confessed to this crime, my brother died. I'm done. What he did is just sick. I'm done with him. If they want me for a witness or something in court, they're going to have to subpoena me or something because I don't have any intentions of going and seeing him or anything. Whatever he gets, he deserves. I just wish he would have got caught a long time ago. He's going to have to pay for what he did, even if that's the death penalty. That little girl died, didn't she? Jay said that in hindsight, he should have picked up on an important detail years ago. He said, quote, The handwriting on the paper that I seen on the news yesterday, that's his handwriting. Jay confided that he was glad his and John's parents hadn't lived to see their son arrested for the notorious crime that they, along with the rest of Fort Wayne, knew all too much about. In a news conference announcing the arrest of the prime suspect in the murder of April Tinsley, investigators and the deputy chief from the Fort Wayne PD, the Allen County Sheriff's Department, Indiana State Police, and the FBI spoke about what the arrest meant to generations of law enforcement who had worked the case. Janet Tinsley made a statement through a victim's advocate, thanking all the investigators who had refused to give up on her daughter's case over the decades. She also asked for privacy for the family, who was grieving all over again with the news of the arrest of April's killer. Her statement said, quote, I was hoping that one day it would come, she said, referring to the arrest of a suspect in the case. I was shocked, but then again, I was happy. The day after the arrest, community members gathered at April's garden to release balloons, leave flowers, and give thanks that April's killer had finally been captured after terrorizing the area for three decades. For John Miller's first court appearance, Janet and Michael both decided to stay away from the courtroom and the spotlight. Emotions were just too raw. However, Teresa Tinsley, April's aunt, was in the courtroom for the brief hearing. She told the Journal Gazette, quote, It's been a roller coaster ride for the mom and dad. As for her, she could not help crying at the relief of finally knowing who killed April. She said, quote, I expected a monster, which is exactly what I seen. Miller was arraigned on July 19th. He appeared disheveled and frail in court, sporting a clown-like orange and white striped jumpsuit, his mouth hanging open. The charges against him were read aloud, murder and child molestation. Allen County Judge John F. Serbeck asked Miller whether he understood the charges against him. Miller quietly replied yes. His plea was not guilty. The judge then asked whether he had any questions. Miller mumbled something inaudible. Excuse me, the judge said. Not at this time, Your Honor, Miller said. He was ordered held without bond. This time, Janet Tinsley did attend the court hearing. She wore a blue t-shirt emblazoned with the slogan, Never Forgotten, which had become sort of a mantra for the Tinsley family. No one from Miller's family attended. His brother meant it when he said he would not participate in any proceedings involving his disgraced sibling. Many people in the community haunted by the crime were intrigued by the capture of the killer of Little April so many years earlier. Crystal Higgs, whose daughter Emily was one of the unlucky recipients of a note and a condom from Miller in 2004, could not help but go to the trailer home Miller lived in in Grable to see for herself where the monster lived all those years. She told the Indy Star that she cried when she heard of Miller's arrest. It was like, this is over with. This is over with, finally, she said. 
Her son Brock recounted how he was only four when his sister Emily found the terrifying note in her bike basket. There was no doubt in the family's mind that it really was from the killer, as detectives verified that this was likely. Emily's brother Brock told the Journal Gazette, quote, It affected us a lot. We never played in the front yard after that. My best friend lived down the street, and I wasn't allowed to walk down there. So many people were affected by Miller's vile acts, well beyond just the Tinsley family. So let's talk about John Miller. He was born on July 7, 1959, to parents Bob and Patty Miller, one of their three sons. He grew up in Waterloo, and his father owned Bob Miller Ford. His brother, Jay, told the Journal-Gazette that his older brother, John, was always slow, very quiet, and preferred being indoors to playing outside or playing sports like most other boys their age. John attended DeKalb High School for freshman year, but suffered from a mental or learning disability and never graduated. Much later, Jay heard that John had been bullied and made fun of at school. Jay told the paper that even as an adult, quote, dealing with John is like dealing with a 13-year-old. In John's early life, his mother, Patty, was his primary caretaker. She worked to improve his hand-eye coordination by having him craft homemade items like potholders. Patty and Bob divorced when Jay was 11 and John was 14. Bob and his new wife got custody of John, and he was sent to live at the Saulwood Youth Center. From there, he was moved to a boys' reformatory school in Muncie. After that, he returned to live with Bob and his wife, but they moved him into the trailer in Grable when he was only 19 because Bob's wife claimed that John scared her. John was capable of living and working on his own, but his family took care of him over the years. Per the Journal-Gazette, John played cards with his mother and another relative every weekend, and his mother made him weekly meals until her death in 2015. After that, Jay took over the meal prep, and John would go to his home weekly to pick up food and the Sunday paper so he could do the word search. John regularly ate breakfast alone at the Grable Inn. As for work, John lived right near the Eagle Pitcher Industries plant, where his father got him a job, and he worked for 22 years until he was fired in 2000. In that incident, his temper got the better of him, and there was an incident where he broke an employee card swipe machine in a burst of anger. When he was let go, he didn't tell his family that he was out of a job. They only found out when the power and water were shut off at his trailer. His brother visited the trailer often to check in on John. Jay told the Journal-Gazette that their conversations were always the same. How's your job? How's your car? How's your trailer? The answers were always the same. John was a creature of habit and lived under the radar, keeping to himself, watching TV, and doing puzzles. Detective Hetrick commented to WANE, quote, after knowing what we know now, I'm not surprised. He was a very private person. He was awkward. He kept to himself. He worked the midnight shift. He went from work to home and did the same thing every day. I think that is the reason he stayed under the radar for 30 years. Jay noted that John had lots of adult videos, but assumed that was a harmless habit. He also suspected that John was using the services of sex workers, but never received confirmation of this from his brother. When John was arrested, his current job was at the Kendallville Walmart, where he had been an employee for about 12 years. He worked the midnight shift, which was ideal, as he did not have to interact much with co-workers, who complained that he swore too much. Miller was let go immediately when news of his arrest emerged. Neighbors at the Grable Mobile Home Park say they didn't really know John, that he kept to himself. The worst they reported about him was that he had a bad temper and would swear and kick and throw objects when angered a behavior trait verified by his brother. 
but they really didn't see him around much. He was a loner and stayed indoors. Detective Martin gave me a lot of background info on John Miller. He interviewed Miller in prison after the whole thing was over for hours, gathering information on the killer that would be submitted to the BAU. Capturing these predators alive and talking with them can provide valuable insight into the minds of these type of killers. Martin relayed to me a lot of what they discussed. Miller said that when he was a young boy, eight or nine years old, his mom would often babysit a little five-year-old neighbor girl. When the girl took a nap and his mom wasn't watching, John would fondle her. He took her underwear off and essentially molested her as she slept. He kept her underwear, too, hidden in his room. When his mom found the stash of little girl panties one day, that put a stop to that, but she never told anyone about this disturbing behavior. Then, as a preteen, John tried to attack the little sister of a friend of his. His attack failed, but he went on at age 17 to try to rape a young woman in a Pizza Hut bathroom. Witnesses saw him running in the parking lot after she fought him off, and that's when he was sent to live in the Saul Wood Youth Center, a boy's home. There, he engaged in voluntary sex acts with the other boys, giving them oral sex and letting them have sex with him. He enjoyed it, he told Detective Martin. Then, when the boys' home was shut down, John was sent to a juvenile detention center where he had an older girlfriend. In his teen years, he often worked at his father's car dealership, washing and detailing the cars. He told Detective Martin that when he was on the car lot and a school bus would come down the street, he would pull down his pants and shake his penis at the children on the bus. As an adult, he subsisted on random hookups for sex, frequenting parks where men met for anonymous homosexual encounters, and he employed the services of both male and female sex workers. Miller told Martin that he had one special relationship with an older guy that he met at the park, The two exchanged numbers and would meet as much as twice or three times a week for sex. But sometime in the 2010 range, this man stopped returning his calls and didn't come around the park anymore. John didn't know what happened to him until one day, when he was visiting his mother at the nursing home, he saw his sex partner being wheeled down the hallway of the home in a wheelchair. He assured Detective Martin that he had not had sex with this guy at the nursing home. That would have seemingly been crossing the line even for Miller. After Miller's arrest, his trailer was searched top to bottom. After all, it was the scene of the crime. April had been brought there and killed there. But nothing was found other than a VHS and DVD porn collection. Miller told detectives that he would masturbate to homosexual porn. Crime scene techs also located some old family Polaroids that could not be connected to the Polaroid delivered by Miller to the little girl in Fort Wayne. They did not find April's missing earring and Miller denied that he ever kept anything of April's as a trophy. In fact, he also denied that the dildo, the one that was revealed on AMW that was found near April's body, was his, or that he had left it there at all. Detective Martin believes that Miller would have told him if it were his. Miller, he said, was pervy and creepy, and seemed to take pride in the dirty little secret he harbored for 30 years. When Martin asked about the dildo, Miller giggled and said it wasn't his. He seemed to really enjoy the unnerving coincidence that put it near April's body. There remains the question about what, if anything, John Miller's family knew about his involvement in April's death. There's no doubt in detectives' minds that Jay knew nothing. He has renounced his brother and declared that he wishes he'd recognized the handwriting earlier. What, if anything, the dead brother Robert knew is anyone's guess. But what about Miller's mother? She was the closest with him. 
It seems that at the very least she protected him, carefully guarding his secret about what he had done to the little girl she babysat, and taking care of him even though she knew that he had tried to attack two other girls. Jay Miller, John's brother, said that the story he heard from his mother was that Miller had been molested when he was living in the boys' home. As we heard from Miller, this was not the case. He was a very willing participant in the sexual encounters he had there. But Patty was clearly anxious to portray her son in a different light. Detective Martin tells me that, although he cannot prove this, he strongly suspects that Patty Miller knew what her son had done to April. Miller told Detective Martin that he never told his mother anything about it. But some things Miller relayed to the detective seemed to imply that she knew what the deal was. For one thing, she asked her son at some point between 2009 and her death in 2015 if he still had his old bedspread. This was the Paisley one that was seen in the Polaroid and was shown to the world on America's Most Wanted. John told her that he had gotten rid of it. Why would she have asked about that if she weren't concerned that it could identify him? In fact, Miller told Detective Martin that when he watched AMW and saw that investigators were trying to track down the bedspread, he put it in a trash bag, drove it miles away, and discarded it in a dumpster behind a commercial building. But even more tellingly, Patty Miller at one point asked John if police had ever talked to him or asked for his DNA. She counseled him, if they do, don't give it to them. It sounds to me as though Patty had her suspicions that her strange, pervy son had some connection to the famous local case covered twice in three years by America's Most Wanted. Detective Martin described Miller to me as a real weirdo. Although he was not educated, as reflected in his notes and writings, he was not unintelligent. He took a sick pleasure in what he had done and enjoyed the power rush of his little secret that he was the notorious killer everyone sought. In a way, he both cherished his secret and wanted the world to know who he was. When I asked Martin if he thought that Miller left the semen-filled condoms so that investigators could confirm through DNA that he was indeed April's killer, he said no. DNA wasn't nearly as prominent in 2004 as it is today, and Miller probably would not have had that as his goal. Rather, Martin believed Miller left the goodies simply to get off on the thought of the little girls finding his presence. He quite possibly even masturbated into the condoms while he was watching his prey. Ironically, Miller told Martin and Hetrick that he always masturbated into condoms because he didn't like to get messy. Remember, three of them were found in his trash by the detectives looking for DNA, and no sexual partner was observed with Miller during those two weeks of stakeout. Who would have ever thought that this guy would be a neat freak? Speaking of the notes he left for the girls... Martin asked Miller why he had threatened to blow up their houses. Miller was not someone who was remotely interested in making explosive devices or blowing things up. Miller told him it was because he observed the attention the Unabomber got for his bombs. He said that he, Miller, wanted media attention as well, so he threw the bomb part in to get it. It's unclear why Miller resurfaced with the barn message in 1990 and then again with the notes in 2004 and remained silent all the years surrounding and in between. He did say that he wrote the barn message a full two months before anyone noticed it. But the notes he left around town ended up working against him. They caused the fear of April's murderer to resurface, and families once again closed ranks around their kids, so he was not able to abduct any others. As for April's family, they did not know John Miller, and detectives said that his name had never appeared in the case file. Yes, Detective Martin told WANE that he was very surprised that no one had ever called in a tip about Miller. 
He said, quote, it boggles my mind that no one recognized his handwriting and the bedspread was so unique and no one said, you should look at this guy. Martin went on to point out that for 30 years, John Miller lived in mainstream society, working in a major retail establishment, yet he never attracted any notice from anyone. He said, quote, he's sneaky, he's clever, he's living in plain sight. He lived across from a softball field in Park. It makes my skin crawl to think that he sat in his trailer 200 yards from children playing. Without his DNA being linked to him through forensic genealogy and connecting him to the crime, it is very possible that John Miller never would have been caught. He could have just continued living under a rock, relishing his criminal secret alone, and gotten away with it forever. Now that it finally had answers, and the specter of April Tinsley's killer living among them had been vanquished, the community set about healing. Prayer sessions took place at April's garden, and about 50 people attended a vigil and unveiling of a memorial tree at April's former elementary school. Many community members told the media that, even though the crime was so long ago, and some of them weren't even alive in 1988, the relief that the killer of April Tinsley was finally behind bars was overwhelming. The Tinsley family prepared itself for long and arduous legal proceedings as the Miller case wound its way through the criminal courts. They knew it could take years. John Miller's public defender, Anthony Churchward, arranged for Miller to be evaluated for fitness to stand trial. Although he looked physically frail, sort of hunched and unsteady in appearance, all agreed that he was of sound mind. Detective Hetrick said to WANE, quote, He knows what he did. He knows right from wrong. He's socially awkward and he's not well educated, but he's just like anyone else and he knows what he's doing. He knows right from wrong. Prosecutors would not state publicly whether they intended to seek the death penalty for John Miller. Per Indiana law, the death penalty is warranted in murder cases if there is at least one aggravating circumstance, such as felony child molestation. And April's family did not mince words about whether they hoped for that closure. Janet formally requested that prosecutors pursue the death penalty within two days of Miller's arrest. She told the Journal Gazette that she would push prosecutors to pursue death. She said, quote, if he does get the electric chair or the gas chamber or whatever, I'm going to be there and I'm going to be pushing the button. I want to be the last face he sees. The legal proceedings moved forward fairly swiftly with only a few delays. One of these was generated by a motion for change of venue filed by Miller's public defense team. Their October 4th, 2018 motion to move the trial elsewhere to preserve its fairness cited, quote, public hostility against him, public outrage over the crime, and speculative opinions as to his guilt and character. The judge said he would consider this motion and would rule on whether to move the entire trial or whether he would adopt a different solution. The trial would proceed in Allen County, but the jury pool would be selected from another county. Judge Serbeck said later, quote, There is no way you could try that case here. In this community, the citizens have been reminded on a regular basis what he is alleged to have done. The change of venue hearing was scheduled for December 8th. When that date arrived, everyone was assembled in the courtroom and there was a surprise. Allen County Deputy Prosecutor Tom Child announced that a plea agreement had been reached. The agreement required John Miller to plead guilty to the murder and molestation of April Tinsley 30 years earlier. The defendant read a prepared statement aloud. On April 1, 1988, I abducted April Tinsley. After abducting her, I had sexual intercourse with her. I strangled her with my hands, killing her. 
Miller also responded to questions from the judge, answering affirmatively that he understood his rights, was accepting the deal of his own free will, and that he recognized that he was barred from appealing the plea agreement. He also answered negatively when asked if he suffered from any kind of mental incapacity. The plea agreement called for Miller to serve back-to-back sentences of 50 years for murder and 30 years for child molesting. Janet was in the front row when this plea deal was announced. Afterwards, all she would say publicly was, quote, right now it's emotional. As I mentioned, Janet had made clear to prosecutors that she did not support a plea deal. Before this hearing, she had met twice with prosecuting attorneys and pushed them to seek the death penalty for Miller. I kept telling the prosecutor, I understand where you're coming from, but I'm not agreeing to it, she said. I want to see him fried. But it was not to be. Many people, other than the Tinsleys, felt that the plea deal was for the best. It saved money and resources, it guaranteed a conviction, and it spared the family from having to sit through a lengthy, emotionally taxing trial rife with the gruesome details. Miller was scheduled to be sentenced in January of 2019, but because Judge Serbeck, who had presided over all the Miller proceedings to date, was set to retire on December 31st of 2018, the sentencing was moved up so he could pronounce sentence on Miller before leaving the bench. This was something the judge wanted to do, even though it was largely just a formality. This case needs to get done, Serbeck proclaimed. At the sentencing hearing, emotions ran high. The courtroom was standing room only. Allen County Prosecutor Karen Richards gave an emotional speech saying, quote, 30 years ago, this man did something in this community that changed almost everyone in this courtroom. She said that Fort Wayne lost its sense of safety and security for decades because of his depraved actions. I cannot still imagine the pain and anguish this caused the Tinsley family, she said. What he did shook the foundation of this community. April's extended family members had a chance to speak as well. Christina Snyder, April's cousin, was the first family member to address the convicted man. She talked about April and how close the two little cousins were. She ended by facing Miller and saying, quote, There will never be closure. May you burn in hell, you monster. Another cousin of April's, Barbara Smith, later said of her statement to Miller, I looked him dead in the eye and told him I cannot wait for the day that I get the phone call that you die. Janet Tinsley had the chance to address John Miller directly for the first time. She told him that she recalled the day April went missing as though it were yesterday and said that April's murder tore her family apart. She asked him, quote, Why did you take her? You threw her body out like trash. I'll never forgive, and I'll never forget what you took from us. She went on, quote, You took her life. We want yours. But unfortunately, we're not getting that. Miller sat as though incapacitated in the wheelchair he was brought into the courtroom in. His lawyer said that he had heart problems and had trouble walking. But clearly, Miller was also suffering from an emotional deficit. As April's anguished family read their statements through tears and palpable grief, Miller did not show any emotion or react in any way. When it was his turn to speak, perhaps personally to express remorse or apologize, he did not. Instead, his lawyer read a statement that they had prepared on his behalf. Through the statement, Miller acknowledged responsibility for killing April and apologized to the Tinsleys. I wish that it had never happened, Miller's statement said. It sounded hollow to everyone in the room. As part of the plea deal, Miller was required to detail exactly what he had done to April. Some of April's family members had to hear these details for the first time as they were read aloud. The impact on April's family was visible. Her cousin Christina said, quote, It was hard hearing him tell us how he killed her. 
Janet said, quote, I started shaking. It felt like my stomach was turning. It was bad. I totally wasn't expecting that. Judge Serbeck declined to make any of his own comments prior to handing down the sentence. He said the others who spoke had said it all. He sentenced Miller to 80 years in prison. This was 50 years for the murder and 30 years for child molestation. Both were the maximum time periods called for by the statutes in effect in 1988, the year the crime was committed. Allen County Prosecutor Karen Richards later explained the choice not to seek the death penalty for Miller. She said his age was the predominant factor. A life sentence would ensure that Miller would die in prison with no hope of leniency, whereas if he got the death penalty, he would see years, if not decades, of appeals, legal proceedings, and delays. Detective Martin, for one, was satisfied with the outcome. He knew that Miller would spend the rest of his life incarcerated. He said, quote, We have one less monster on the street. My end game was to get John Miller off the streets forever, and we did that. After the sentencing, April's family spoke to the media and expressed their frustration with the result of the proceedings. Christina said, quote, Nobody in the family wanted to accept a plea bargain. We wanted this to go to trial. We wanted to shoot for the death penalty. The family waited 30 years to get this day, and it feels like it's been taken away. More of April's family spoke out. Her other cousin, Shannon Welkel, said, quote, We don't feel like this is justice. April didn't get justice. Janet Tinsley said, quote, us getting the closure as a whole complete family would have been if we got the death penalty. And of her husband Michael's reaction, she said, quote, He chewed out Karen Richards from head to toe, told her, no, he killed her, I want his head. Michael, for his part, refused to speak publicly, but did post on Facebook after the sentencing, quote, There was no justice for April. The bleeding hearts don't want to punish criminals anymore. This fucking trash should have gotten the death penalty and had it carried out the day they arrested him. That's all I got to say. John Miller is now Indiana Department of Corrections inmate number 264854 at the prison in Newcastle. According to the Indiana Department of Corrections, his earliest possible release date is July 15, 2058, six days after his 99th birthday. On April 1, 2019, 31 years after April's abduction, Janet attended a brief ceremony at April's garden to place Easter eggs and flowers. The ceremony was attended by friends and family and Cece Moore, who came to pay her respects to April's family and observe the somber anniversary of the case. April's case was one of Parabon's first big solves. Cece told NBC Fort Wayne, quote, Janet feels like she can breathe easier now, and that's really all we can hope for, because we can't undo the damage, we can't provide a happy ending, unfortunately, but I hope that families getting answers lessen that burden. Since closing the groundbreaking Tinsley case, Detective Martin has gone on to provide education to other investigators around the country and the world on how forensic genealogy can be used in solving crimes. As for whether John Miller has other victims, Detective Martin believes that he does not. Remember, Miller volunteered that he had spent years driving through neighborhoods looking for an opportunity to abduct someone else, but it never arose. Detective Martin told WANE, quote, To think he could do something so heinous as what he did to April in 1988 and then just stop, I think everyone was very skeptical of that. We were very direct with John about other cases. We kept going over other cases. We knew there was no DNA match, but we were persistent with John to tell us and help other families if there are other families, and he was very insistent there was not. It's incredible that he went looking, and fortunately, no one was there. 
As an aside, John Miller's name came up as a possible person of interest when Abby and Libby were killed in Delphi, Indiana, 90 miles from Fort Wayne, in February of 2017. But Miller is not considered a suspect in that case. To hear much more about Indiana's second most notorious child murder case, download our serialized podcast, Scene of the Crime, Season 1, Delphi. After 30 years, April Tinsley's case is closed thanks to forensic genealogy. And if you were one of the bad guys, they're coming for you. Special thanks to Detective Brian Martin for speaking with me about this case. Thanks for listening to this episode of DNA ID. To contact the show, please email the podcast at dnaidpodcast at gmail.com. Follow us on social media at dnaidpodcast on Instagram, at dnaidpodcast on Twitter, and at dnaidpodcast on Facebook. DNA ID is written, researched, and hosted by me, Jessica Betancourt. It's produced by me and Mike Morford of Abjack Entertainment. Music by Connor Betancourt. Check out our other collaborative podcasts, Scene of the Crime and Missing Persons. And now I'd like to play a promo for you of a podcast I think you'll really like called Mr. Radical. Hey, I'm Lynn, and this is my co-host, JP. Hey there, we're Mr. Radical, and we love a good mystery. Oh, right, it's <laughs> Each week, we come through a mystery and its theories and discuss some of our own. That's right. (laughs) We give original thoughts on mysteries around the world, large or small. Murder, mayhem, aliens, or the bizarre. Tune in every Tuesday wherever you listen to podcasts.